0: This is an ABC podcast. How good is Australia? Australia has to answer to the Pacific. That is a matter for them.
1: No matter how much money you put on the
2: table, it doesn't give you the excuse not to do the right thing. You're going to step up,
0: you're going to show up. And Australia's going to show up.
2: Hello, I'm Patricia Carvelis from RN Drive. No wait, RN Breakfast, no. It's RN Drive, but I was filling in for Fran a little bit. So a bit of an identity crisis, although RN Drive mainly, and co-hosting The Party Room. And my co-host this week is...
1: Hi, Sabra here from AM, ABC Radio. Then, PK, I'm going to be doing my best friend Kelly impersonation today. Minus the singing, I suggested to PK that I could do some interpretive dance, but, you know, that doesn't really work for a podcast, does it? It's good that you had that realisation before we
2: started, though. Um, It's good. (laughs) And, uh, you know, as we say, as they say at school now always, you do you. Sabra, you do you. So we're happy for you to be Sabra Lane today. This is the Party Room Podcast. And of course, the key word here is party. So dancing is totally appropriate. But let's just get stuck into the big issues because apologies, we didn't have a party room last week. There's quite a bit to catch up on. Let's just start with... The Pacific Islands Forum in Tuvalu, where Alex Hawke, the Minister for International Development in the Pacific, has, you know, donned the traditional uh, skirt and he's put on one of those shirts and that's always fun. The Prime Minister's gone too Lots of Pacific leaders, and they're trying to figure out what they're going to do on, well, climate change and the demands of the Pacific. How is this all going to work out, Sabra?
1: Well, it'll be interesting to see how it all works out, because they've got a leaders uh, retreat today, and we'll get to that a little bit later. The Prime Minister arrived there yesterday, uh, and we're recording this on Thursday. He was all smiles. He had a wonderful tropical button-up shirt and a beautiful floral headdress, but uh, didn't get quite the same reception for his $500 million package for Pacific nations to invest in renewable energy and bolster their infrastructure for climate change and natural disasters. The the Pacific Island leaders are quite cold about that. Let's hear from NLE Sapwanga, the Prime Minister of the host nation, Tuvalu. No matter how much money you put on the table, it doesn't give you the excuse not to do the right thing that
2: is cutting down your emission, including not opening your coal mines. That is the thing that we want to seek. And I certainly wish as parties to the the Paris Agreement, we remain committed to what we agreed in Paris and, of course, to deliver. Okay, so there he is, really uh, putting down his requirements and shared by others as well. But this is a red line issue for Australia. Australia has been, and we're recording this on a Thursday morning, a lot could shift, but I think... It gives us an indication of the direction this is going in. Essentially, Canberra, the Prime Minister, all of the people who work for the Prime Minister, a lot of people involved in this, have been pushing to soften the language, getting rid of you know, references to coal. They don't want coal in there. Also trying to get rid of this idea of a climate crisis in this declaration. Australia pretty keen to really change the language here. And it's fair to say that Australia has quite a bit of sway in these negotiations. Of course, the Pacific nations have said what they want. But ultimately, this is something that Australia is putting its foot down on, though, Sarah.
1: Yeah, they are putting their foot down. And PK, as we go to air, uh, there are reports coming out of Tuvalu this morning saying that Australia is succeeding in having a lot of references to coal taken out of this draft communique that will be published later today. So maybe they are having success there. But, you know, they are pushing back. Um, They've very much, I mean, this package was aimed at trying to ameliorate ameliorate those concerns that uh, our island neighbours have that Australia isn't doing enough. But uh, this government really can't and won't move in that area because it's been um, a big... Issue for the coalition—they've, you know, lost a lot of skin and treasure over this argument for a decade, uh, and they won't want to lose any more, quite frankly. No, and they feel emboldened
2: so, by the election result, don't they, Sabra? This is the thing. I mean, do. this coal issue—it's not just. I mean, the prime minister has this Pacific step up, and we're going to talk about this a bit more with Lenore Taylor, our guest today. But clearly, you know. He wants to do more in the Pacific, and that's why he's come armed with this money and trying to really facilitate a positive relationship with Pacific leaders, because there's the big issue of China that Australia is trying to mitigate against, if you like, or deal with. But equally, Australia feels like, hang on a minute, uh, the government feels, the coalition government, like they've got a message from voters and that they're pretty solid on that message, particularly from Queensland, which is that you know they're not going to get rid of coal out of the system.
1: No, they're not going to do that. And it was also interesting before the PM headed off for this meeting on the weekend and and last Friday, of course, there was COAG too with this big emphasis on recycling and doing something about plastics and plastics in the oceans. So that was also another way of trying to sort of polish up their environmental credentials ahead of this meeting as well, to sort of point to Pacific leaders the fact that they are trying to do other practical things in this area too that it's you know the government saying it's not just climate change that needs addressing here. No, and the government's gone in and the
2: prime minister's gone in as we've said recording this Thursday morning or you know they'll be communicated by the time some of you listen to this podcast but the prime minister's come in you know, not sort of flexing muscle and saying, oh, you know, we're going to bash you over the head. He's he's trying to be conciliatory but still not use the language that, you know, doesn't sort of fit his government's agenda. It
1: is a pretty hard dance but that's what he's trying to do. <laughs> it is a really hard dance uh, and, well, you know, at the moment, you've got to give him credit. Uh, he seems to be doing quite well at the moment, uh, you know, and if the, the early reporting out of there today is correct, if they're... Um Getting rid of uh, references of coal, well, um, they're having some sort of success despite the uh, strident calls from Pacific leaders earlier this week. Now, I mentioned it
2: already, the biggest word, I reckon, of our political discourse at the moment, China. (laughs) That's the word because everything has been about China. We missed last week's podcast, so let's just give you a sense of what we're talking about here Last week, Sabra, it was Liberal MP Andrew Hastie who you know, created what was a storm. What did he say that was so contentious?
1: He wrote an op-ed piece for one of the nine newspapers and he basically compared the ambitions of Beijing to the rise of Nazi Germany and he pointed to how the French were basically unprepared for Nazi Germany. Now, A lot of people got really quite annoyed at the way that he chose to characterise this issue. You know, for him, this is a deeply personal issue and he's been thinking about it for quite some time. Now, the Prime Minister pointed out that uh, Andrew Hastie is not a minister, but the thing is, is that he is the chairman of the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and National Security. So he's not just a humble backbencher. He has quite a position on a senior, uh, powerful parliamentary committee here. So when Andrew Hastie writes or says something, people do sit up and take note. But he was slapped down by some of his colleagues, uh, notably a West Australian colleague, Finance Minister Matthias Cormann, called it clumsy and inappropriate, the Trade Minister, Simon Birmingham. He also made similar noises and set out a criteria for speaking on matters of diplomacy saying that, yes, ministers um, don't like to say these things publicly and you want to have this kind of discussion, you need to have it internally behind the scenes. And it was basically a a message to shut up. And while the phrasing might have been a bit clumsy, the substance of what he was saying is spot on, according to other MPs and long-term China observers. For example, uh, the newly elected uh, member to Wentworth, former Israeli ambassador David Sharma, also said, um, you know, that... It was good that Andrew Hastie was putting these sorts of things on the record, but it also places Australia in a tricky position. The Chinese embassy straight away issued a, a statement saying that uh, it was very unwise. That's right, hostile. It is, yeah. and
2: and this is the thing, right? There is, was always been a tension between trade, you know, rivers of gold coming from China, business trade, all of that, and of course national security. But what I think is shifting now is that there are more people, Andrew Hastie being a good example, Dave Sharma, others who think hang on a minute national security has to take precedence here and we need to draw a line. And I think even some of the way that Australia is repositioning, look at the Hong Kong protests they're worth noting here. Huge protests, uh, really a democracy movement like we've not seen. Um, it's been going on for three months now. Airports shut down, everyone's been you know, consuming the news on this, but Even Australia's response to this, I think, has been key. Uh, Maurice Payne saying, hang on a minute, the police's response has to be proportionate and concern about what China might do here. You know, this is the whole Mm. world is watching. Now, Mm. of course, Australia has to be careful and has always been careful about that. But either way, I get the sense that Australia's kind of, well, in some ways, sided with the protesters, right?
1: Mm. Well, they have. Um, Initially, um, Carrie Lam, the chief executive of Hong Kong, was very stark in her criticism earlier this week and there was the commentary from China saying that these protesters were sort of sprouting signs of terrorism. Now, interestingly, uh, the Prime Minister sided with the demonstrators and said he didn't think that there were signs of terrorism at all and ministers have been talking up the right of protesters to be able to do this. So it will be interesting to see how this plays out. China has, though, PK, dynastic patience Mm it's prepared to wait for a long time to get what it wants.
2: Yeah, it certainly is but this is a huge challenge for our government. It does feed into the way it handles the Pacific, the step up there. It actually is all very much linked
1: up. Look, before we, we like, bring in our... That's all linked up and not, let's not forget we haven't even mentioned the US-China trade war stuff too, also happening in the background.
2: I know. It's, it's actually the perfect storm in many ways. Look, before <laughs> we bring in our guest, I wanted to touch on the government's review of its migration program. Like The big story is this last couple of weeks have really been very much on Australia and foreign affairs, but there have been other things. And the government is reviewing its migration program after Infrastructure Australia's warnings about the costs of inaction. I mean, they're not you know, entirely just linked. There is This review was going to happen anyway, but I think... That if you look at the two at the same time, we've got these warnings about you know, whether infrastructure is keeping up. And then on Tuesday night, Immigration Minister David Coleman spoke at the Sydney Institute about resettling migrants in regional Australia. Here he is. For the 2019-20 year, we're
1: allocating 23,000 places for regional migration within two new visa categories focused on regional Australia. These visas require people to live and work in regional Australia for three years in order to obtain permanent residency. By linking regional living to permanent residency, we will ensure that people commit
2: to the areas outside of our main capitals. So, debate about migration levels. Interesting to note that opposition leader Anthony Albanese, in the wake of that infrastructure um, report and that information has said, you know, the city of Sydney is stretched. So we've got... They're not entirely new issues, but how the government manages the big migration question, it's fascinating. Can it really pivot to regional resettlement. It's been tried many times before, hasn't it, Sabra? doesn't
1: always work. It has. No, it doesn't always work. But, I mean, these. it also ties up three uh, key issues. Shortage of workers in regional areas. The congestion that the cities are facing, and also, you know, especially the Nationals, have been on about trying to revitalise regional areas to encourage city folk and also new Australians out to the bush areas. So that ties up all of those issues. And, like you say, it's a this is the one issue that constantly keeps bubbling up because it is something that we are grappling with and it's something you know that the infrastructure hasn't kept pace with our population growth i mean that that key report was basically pointing out that we needed a new wave of infrastructure over the next fifteen years, just to keep pace with the current population growth, so you know that was a, a real uh, wake-up call for everybody.
2: It sure was. And uh, look, I, I'll I'll never forget when Kevin Rudd said he wanted a big Australia. We've really been having that debate since he, oh. he put that on the agenda. I think it's time to bring in our guest, decade. though. Yeah, well, just we like to keep talking, don't we? <laughs> Let's bring her in, Lenore Taylor. <laughs>
1: And Lenore Taylor, editor of Guardian Australia, welcome to the party room. I'm very pleased to be here. It's exciting to have you here, Lenore, because you are
2: quite an expert in some of the things we're going to talk about. So even before the Pacific Islands Forum began, regional leaders were out doing everything they could to make sure that the threat of climate change is number one on the agenda but already, in fact, The Guardian's been reporting we are going to, you know, we're recording this on a Thursday morning, so this will have shifted, but essentially that Australia is really taking out a lot of um, the, the, the kind of language that
0: Australia was concerned about. How will it end, do you think? Oh, as these things usually do with a kind of watered down communique. Um, it's interesting, though, like we're taking out references or seeking to take out references to the climate change crisis and insert instead climate change reality, even though the science says the reality is a crisis. You know, the point of this exercise is obviously to uh, prop up the sort of support or the idea that we're supporting ongoing use of coal. But the references in the community, the communique, as I understand it, were really about phasing out of coal over time, not opening up new coal mines. And from the Pacific Islands point of view, given that they're on the front line of the climate crisis... And I do think it's a crisis, you can understand why they would want that in there, really.
1: Lenore, the Prime Minister arrived in Tuvalu yesterday, Wednesday, and in his typical jocular fashion said he was ready to face tough questions. Let's hear from him.
0: If you're going to step up, you've got to show up, and Australia's
1: going to show up. And We're not just going to show up here, uh, we're going to show up Absolutely. for the, for the hard conversations, the good conversations, the family conversations that we have, and that's very much the spirit in which we're engaging. Lenore, the leaders are having their retreat today. How do you see this all playing out?
0: Well, I mean, on the plus side, I guess, from the Pacific Nations' point of view, he showed up with five hundred million dollars from the existing aid budget to spend on climate projects in the Pacific, uh, and that, you know, is obviously welcome. But I don't think, I think the Tuvalu and Prime Minister called it shut up money and said that they're not going to shut up. And even if, no matter what happens with the communique, there's a battle of hearts and minds going on here in the Pacific for these Pacific nations. This Pacific Islands Forum used to be not particularly well attended. Now China goes, the US goes, Australian Prime Ministers go, because the Pacific is such is so significant in, in national security and strategic terms, and because China is seeking to expand its influence so much... So so, whether you change a word or here or there in a communique, if you've really put the Pacific leaders' backs up by what you're doing, then surely we're getting kind of caught in this squish between untenable climate policy, in my view, and our national security interest of having really good relations in the Pacific countries. I think we're sort of in this uncomfortable position now when it comes to the Pacific.
2: It's interesting, actually. I spoke to Winston Peters, the Deputy Prime Minister of New Zealand on RN Breakfast, and he he made this point that, hang on a minute, Pacific leaders, look at look at china as well in terms of their emissions mm. in terms of getting too close to them because you you might be angry at australia that was the sort of the tone you have to listen to the specific wording i'm not quoting i'm sort of characterizing mm. what did you make of that contribution because there was a bit of discussion about jacinda ardern putting you know some comments out there about australia but it seems that the deputy prime minister there's taking a bit of a different line
0: well i mean i think if you sort of take three steps back it goes back to this idea of how the globe is trying to deal with climate change. And the expectation on China was that it would reduce its emissions from where they were projected to be. And China for a long time was right on track to do that. Over the last couple of years, it's absolutely true that China's emissions have started to rise again in absolute terms. And what it does over the next little while will be incredibly important to whether the globe can, you know, cap out global warming in the way that, that we want to. But, you know, China's in this weird position. It's both the largest consumer of uh, of coal and has this massive expansion of renewables and a massive renewables manufacturing, domestic manufacturing industry. And at the end of the day, I come back to the point I said before, if you're looking at it, at it in just sort of purely factual terms, then maybe Winston Peters has a bit of a point. China's not no saint when it comes to emissions, absolutely not. But we need to be looking at it from the point of view of the Pacific leaders and what they expect and what they want and and differing expectations of China and of developed countries like Australia. And really, if they're not convinced by what we're saying, if they're not convinced that we're going in good faith and acting in good faith, then we've got a problem.
1: Lenore, we know that uh, Alex Hawke, the Minister for International Development and the Pacific, he's tried to play down the presence of China at the forum and, and
0: conversations about Beijing exerting its influence. Is China the elephant in the room? Well, a bit, and it is increasingly. I mean, we saw it at APEC last year in Papua New Guinea. I mean, China is the elephant in the room. And I think there's all this uh, attention at the moment to the sort of diplomatic stances that the Pacific countries are taking on various issues, and particularly whether the Solomon Islands shifts from a sort of pro-Taiwan, pro-US stance to a more pro-Chinese stance, and the Solomons are sort of actively considering their diplomatic positioning. You know, it's a live issue in the Pacific, and I feel like Australia's interests are sort of pulling in different directions. Australia
2: is absolutely in a, well, it's kind of a wicked problem for Australia. And Sabra and I have already discussed the intervention of Andrew Hastie and the broader divide. Can I call it a divide? I'd love your actual commentary on this, Lenore, in the government about how to deal with China as well. And and this, uh, I suppose, segues into the Pacific step up, Mm. which the Prime Minister has been keen to do. Does the government have a coherent Idea about how to deal with China is there a divide, or is it a, a you know divide that is represented on both sides of politics as well in the Labor Party as well? I
0: think there's certainly division in terms of how vocal uh, ministers or backbenchers should be about the obvious problems baked into our current situation. Um, I think the division on what we actually do is probably. A bit less, you know, in terms of Hsi, I think I mean he should have thought twice about the Nazi comparison, but the point he was making that the Chinese regime under Xi is more authoritarian, that it's using new methods of censorship and social control, the whole thing with the Uyghurs, the emerging situation in Hong Kong, and the fact that assumptions we might have made about whether the economic changes in China would lead to democratization are clearly not true. That's a point that pretty much all politicians would have to be thinking about at the moment. I think what Andrew Hastie was saying is we shouldn't assume that Xi will act within, with with respect for, or under, you know, within the realms of existing institutions. The only thing that I kept sort of thinking about as the debate kind of rolled on over the past couple of weeks was that we've also got a president of the United States that isn't. Really acting as though he has respect in the long-term interests of international democratic institutions, foremost in his mind, either. You know, he's been pulling out of trade deals and the Paris Climate Agreement and questioning NATO, and he doesn't like the EU and he doesn't like NAFTA, and he's upended the Iran nuclear deal. And so, to me, the real conundrum that I really hope politicians is think are thinking about in Australia is the confluence of these two historical moments where neither of those superpowers are really supporting or acting to defend the institutions that have underpinned liberal democracies for a long time i mean that's what that's what i find deeply terrifying, And Australia sits in the middle of
2: all of this yeah. and says we believe in a rules-based order. I mean, if we yeah, hear, every idea. time I hear that, if I drank every time, I would be, you know, not able to speak. Under the table. Yeah, yeah. right, because rules-based <laughs> order, we keep talking about it. A little, yeah, but, but the, the point big, is the whole the world's is, changing. Yeah,
0: don't don't obey the rules then what's the point, you know? I just, mm. I just think there's so much in flux at the moment and there's so much pressure on what we used to call the rules-based order that and we need to think about all of that Together, because it you know it it it's it's important to look at what's happening in China, but it's important to look, look at the longer term ramifications of what President Trump's been doing.
2: If we can just move to a, a domestic conversation we're having, but it's about our freedoms really, and I think it's a key one. And Lenore, it's worth mentioning that you're not just uh, the editor of Guardian Australia, you're also now the chair of the Walkley Judging mm-hmm. Board, and. We've been, you know, no doubt you've been glued. I have, that's for sure. I've got to admit it. People won't be surprised to the parliamentary inquiry into press freedoms. The AFP won't rule out charging News Corp journalist Annika Smethurst after the raid on her home. This comes after Peter Dutton, the Home Affairs Minister, you know, quietly on a Friday night put out a new edict to the AFP to think you know, more carefully about the way that they investigate journalists. Is it at odds in some ways that they still won't rule this out even though there's this new directive, even if it's prospective, not retrospective?
0: Yeah, I think that it is at odds, clearly. You know, Anarchist Methurst reported that the heads of the Defence and Home Affairs Ministries had discussed these sort of really draconian powers to allow the ASD to spy on Australian citizens. And The way that the kinds of evidence we heard this week from people like Mike Pizzullo and the AFP about that says to me that despite what Peter Dutton said last Friday of the statement, they don't really get the whole concept of media freedom, I don't think. You know, we found out that Mike Pizzullo, for instance, thinks the leakers should go to jail because they were playing Canberra games about, you know, which agency had more power vis-a-vis other agencies which is kind of gobsmacking in a couple of ways, right? Mm. I mean, on the one hand, he's, he was saying there's nothing to this story, there was no whistle to be blown, nothing to see here. On the other hand, the leaker uh, should, should go to jail, which would therefore seem to be, you know, quite a blatant attempt to just intimidate the media and the leaker. You know, there's no other way to read that, I don't think. And the idea that despite what the minister says, we're not ruling out having, you know, Annika being charged. I mean, I just think they don't, they don't really understand what we're saying about the importance of freedom of the press and the importance of having the media as a way of holding authorities, ministers and agencies to account, even intelligence agencies. They have to be held to account as well. And it's in their long-term interests for that to, be, to happen and for it to be seen to happen because then people will trust them more. You know, mm. this is such a short-term way of thinking on their part, I think. If they are happy, if they can be held to account and are happy to accept that that's our role, then we and citizens will trust them more in doing their job, which, you know, does need at times to be secret and behind closed doors.
2: And just finally, Lenore, question without notice, but I'm just fascinated
0: Uh-oh. with it. <laughs> no, it's on another topic, but I do think it was
2: an interesting it moment didn't this didn't do week. my PPQs. <laughs> Julie Bishop. She did this big interview this mm-hmm. week. She was the deputy leader of the Liberal Party, of course. Big deal. She made lots of comments. She talked about her, her you know her role as Foreign Minister, China. But she said some interesting things about being, you know, the only woman in the room Mm. and so forth. What did you make of that interview and her revelations?
0: Well, I actually uh, particularly um, related to the things she said about gender deafness. Did you hear that bit where she was talking about, you know, you can sit in a room as a woman and say something and it's like it didn't happen and then sort of 10 minutes later a bloke says the same thing and everyone's bowled away by his sheer genius. And I don't reckon there are many women who haven't experienced that. And I remember, i tweeted that. we That was the lead of our story from that interview and I tweeted it and I got rained upon on mm. Twitter about, well, why wasn't she saying that when she was in parliament, blah, blah, blah. And I kind of thought okay, fine, you know, when she was in Parliament, she declined to define herself as a feminist and she had to sort of walk a careful line. But she also survived in the Liberal Party, which doesn't have a spectacular sort of history of dealing with women as, in an as you know, as deputy leader and in an incredibly senior portfolio for a long, long time. And I guess, I mean, maybe I'm soft in my old age, but, you know, to do that, she obviously had to sort of make compromises mm. and suck some stuff up.
2: Mm, I think that's right too. And the other thing that struck me uh, about that kind of critique is, oh, you know, she didn't denounce what happened to Julia Gillard. Well,
0: yeah, okay, again, you know, fair point. It's not, not a fair point. But uh, but it what... doesn't take into account the realities of it. I mean, you know, maybe we've been around too long, but I can, you know, imagine, imagine replaying history and what if she had? What would have happened to her career within the party?
2: Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. And some people would say she should have taken that risk. Well, yeah. life's a bit different, isn't it, sometimes? Well, I
0: mean, that's a valid point, but you have to acknowledge that if she had, it would have had certain consequences. Lenore, thank you so much for being our guest. You were very welcome. It was lots of fun.
2: All right, it's question time. Thanks to everyone who submitted something. Questions, that is, because we love questions. And uh, our first question comes from Dalton, and he asks, with China and the United States' ongoing trade war becoming more fraught as each day passes... Where do you see Australia's future lying with both countries in terms of trading partners and a more militarily based relationship with the US? Also, why is more not being done to create new relationships and strengthen existing ones with countries around the world, particularly in places like Africa, as a way to lower our reliance on China as our major trading partner? Well, it's a good question. And actually, it's the... Australian government's policy, Simon Birmingham actually just said it in an interview with me the other day. He's the trade minister. That Australian, I'll give you the language he uses. It's again, it's diplomatic language because the elephant in the room, as we've been talking about in this podcast, is China. And yes, we are very reliant on China. And yes, because of the national security concerns. There is a concern that perhaps may be too reliant. So the way that the minister answers it is we are trying to actively diversify, (laughs) diversify, you know, read between the lines, decode it, our trade. So that's what we are doing. That is actually going on and, yeah, everyone knows that that is necessary. I mean, not just even because, you know, China's all – if you want to treat China because it's flexing its muscle as if it's, it's a potential national security issue or threat, but also it's smart, isn't it? Any country needs to diversify. So I reckon that's going on. Um, Sabra, you spoke to the Trade Minister this week on AM about, you know, the EU deal they're trying to do where, yeah. of course, my love of FETA will be on the agenda
1: properly. So that's yeah. going on anyway, isn't it? That's right. Geographic indicators. The government released a list of the names that the EU would like to protect and stop Australian producers from using those names. Names like uh, yummy names like Feta and Gorgonzola, for example. So... That negotiation is going at the moment because once um, Brexit happens, of course, uh, we'll also be um, trying to get a deal in place with the Brits and uh, the EU. So all of those talks are happening at the moment. So, you know, the government is trying to diversify and do all of those things as well as um, walk that tricky little tightrope in not upsetting China too much because... uh, Billions and billions of dollars are at play there. That's right. Now, our second question comes from Lincoln. Lincoln, thanks for your question. And he asks, is Fran Kelly available to sing political satire pop songs at weddings or parties? And if so, can she tailor her bracket to suit the political or ideological views of the audience at said engagements? You know what? I reckon she's got enough on her plate at the moment. (laughs) So do I.
2: She's a pretty straight shooter. I don't know if she's going to sing ideological songs for you, unfortunately. But I do know that that it's very hard to restrain her from getting up on a stage. So I reckon if she hears this and sees that this is a live option, Sabra, she might take it. So let's just park it there
1: because she is busy and we don't want her to be spread too thin. There is a serious question too, though, isn't there? There is a serious question, to and just so I can have it on the record, I do have my dance shoes ready. If you'd like some interpretive <laughs> dance on some of these things, I'm quite willing to give that a go, but that might turn your guests off. No. Our second question, has Tenya Plebisek disappeared? I know that she's still the senior front bench shadow minister, but post-election and her non-candidacy for the leadership, in brackets, I thought she was the one for the job personally, end of brackets, she seems to have gone quiet. Well, you know what? I think this is a little bit unfair for Tanya. She has disappeared from the leadership. She used to be deputy leader of the party. And yes, she initially said she would run as leader and fairly quickly said no, she wouldn't. But if she was appearing on a regular basis, I think that she would run the danger of um, you know, having reports written about her about how she was undermining the new leadership by being out there every second day talking to her own portfolio. But... The other thing, PK, is that the Labor Party did lose the election. So you know what? Uh, A lot of them have gone quiet and they're taking their time to think about policy and to think about what messages the electorate gave them and how they're going to um, put those lessons in place for whatever policies they devise.
2: Yeah, it seems like actually quite a a wise thing to do. I've got to say, if I was uh, Tanya Plibersek, I would be doing exactly what she's doing. And look, to be honest, she she has actually been out, though. It's not like she's disappeared. Mm. Maybe you don't see her quite as much as you did during an election campaign when she was the deputy leader, but she's actually around. You know, I've seen her around. She's talking. She's just probably not, you know,
1: hogging up the limelight. That's all. She hasn't got a high operational tempo, as they say (laughs) in the military terms. Well, that's it for the party room, PK. Time for me to put on my interpretive dance shoes and uh, shuffle on out of here. Thanks for being here, though. Sabra, it's been excellent. You've done an
2: excellent job. Thank you. PK, thank you. You. And your submissions for Question Time questions are always welcome. Please, please, please send them. We love audio questions too because you can, like, we can do that. All you have to do is email it to us, the Party Room at abc.net.au. Just use the voice memo app on your smartphone. Just search for it. You just press record. It is so easy to do. It's actually broadcast quality. The world has changed, democratizing audio. I love it.
1: So go forth, Party Rumors. Subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. PK. I've had a blast.
2: I've loved hanging out with you too. See you, Sabra. Ciao.
1: You've been listening to an ABC
0: podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.